Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. American President Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This famous phrase appears to apply to Europe today when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. Can there be a united Europe without Russia? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by my guests, Martin Jay in Marrakesh. He's an award-winning journalist and commentator. And here in Moscow, we have Xavier Moreau. He is the founder of the Center of Political Strategic Analysis, Stratpol. All right, gentlemen, cross-stack rules in effect. That means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. All right, let's start out with Martin. Um, Martin, I think we would all agree that, um, at least formally, uh, Europe is united in seeing Russia defeated in Ukraine, okay? Win, lose. But then you go down a level and, well, what does that really mean? And that is really what's plaguing the Western world and their approach to this conflict. Because you have President, the French President Macron, you have the German Chancellor Schultz talking about, vaguely talking about what has to happen after the conflict. They're not really um, dwelling too much on the minutia, how they get there. Now that you have the Baltic Republics, you have Poland, you have um, uh, the Czech Republic, they're, talk, they're basically no talks, no contact, no future. And we famously, we had a deputy uh, uh, foreign minister in Poland saying that Russia doesn't even deserve security guarantees. So this is where we stand. I would say this is not a winning strategy for the West. No, it's not a winning strategy. I mean, there's a great deal of fumbling about in the dark, searching for the black cat in the black room, you know, on the black chair, which doesn't exist. And I think that the problem we've got here is that the more we look at the Ukraine conflict within the dimension of the European Union, the more we see a division, a division which has been around for actually quite a long time. You know, um, we talk about old Europe and new Europe. You know, um, that's an argument which could actually go back to the Bronze Age. And some people might say that that's the comparison we should make with the European Union. But, you know, more recently, I think it was Donald Rumsfeld who said that, interesting, that old Europe, and he was referring to Eastern European countries, supported the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. And, and the European Union and France and Germany didn't. I think that's probably for most people a sort of reference point. You know, that's where that's where there's a real division um, within so-called foreign policy. If we can imagine, if we if we will, that the European Union has a foreign policy of some sort. So we've got a real problem with division. Most of these Eastern European countries are going along with a plan which they don't really believe in and have real worries about because they're thinking much more in the longer term because Russia's a neighbour. You know, and also many of these countries. When they joined the European Union, largely most of them joined in 2004. A couple joined later in 2006. Um, I was there in Brussels and I covered it. I, it. It was interesting that hardly any of them got any say whatsoever in the terms of how they joined. Whereas France, you know, had a real um, a field day in the in the in the the, the 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 French exception of all the rules that it wanted. You know, and Germany as well. You know, so we've been worried about a Franco-German axis for a very long time. Um, the expansion into Eastern Europe was supposed to compromise that Franco-German axis. That hasn't happened. The Franco-German axis is still there. I would argue it's even more Germanic than ever, you know. But a lot of these Eastern European countries um, are really starting to wake up now about what the real deal is. Most of them are Atlanticists. Most of them are much more aligned to America and to NATO and are very, very worried about the European Union flexing its muscles and... God forbid, one day having its own army and its own foreign policy, because God knows what would happen in Ukraine if that were to happen. So, you know, there's so many 
um, enigmas on the horizon for us to look at, so many political conundrums to tackle. But um, no one has the answer. These ideas that these guys in the West know what's going to happen, they, the, the idea that they have an end game is nonsense. They only have a present game. Well, I, I, will, I will argue a little bit later that Russia does have an end game, and that's what it makes. It, uh, that's the difference in this conflict. Okay, uh, Xavier, um, it, it's very interesting because if you look at the Baltic republics, you look at Poland, and I'm really glad that Martin brought up the Franco-German axis. Is that they're not appealing to Paris or to Berlin? They're always appealing to Washington, and that and this is they say that Russia divides Europe, but no, this is what divides Europe. It's the U.S. The U.S. keeps the Franco-German alliance on one side, and it pushes the new Europe on another, which, of course, is in, in inherently divisive. Xavier. Actually, the point is that the U.S. won the war, but not against Russia, against uh, Europe, against the European economy, especially the German e economy, because uh, we are on a... On is on, on the brink of, of an economic disaster. Um, if you look at the, the travel, uh, the American Macron's travel to the United States, he was supposed to get a drop in the U.S. gas prices. He didn't get it, and the U.S. gas prices is four times uh, more expensive than the, the Russian one. He was supposed to dissuade Joe Biden from applying his plan to support the U.S. economy. He didn't get it. He was. He just has the right to say that it was. It was all the fault of Russia and Vladimir Putin. And if you look at you were talking about uh, Olaf Scholz, look at the travel uh, of Scholz in China. It's a complete failure as well. He didn't get anything. And now you have German uh, uh, car makers who are about to sell some uh, Chinese uh, cars, and you have. Uh, uh, European Union uh, continuing to take suicidal decisions, uh, such as the end of the heat engine, uh, while the Chinese are the first place for the production of electric cars. So uh, we are uh, on the brink of an economic disaster because of stupid um, uh, European decision. And the, the no, most no, stupid... Xavier, no, you said the right word, stupidity. Okay, finish it. Okay, because... because uh, Martin, I'm glad that... I didn't want... I didn't have, hadn't thought about bringing up China here, but the Chinese don't even take the Europeans seriously. They see what the Europeans have done is become supplicants to the U.S. So the Chinese are saying, well, we have to talk to Washington to deal with the Europeans. Europeans. That's essentially what's happening. Martin. Yeah. And, you know, this this old argument of multilateral and bilateral, you know, um, the Chinese have decided, well, I don't think they decided. I think for a long time they've been, they've decided that they can work much more successfully um, talking to EU member states on a one-to-one on -on -one level, you know, because, because again, this lack of credibility for the EU, you know, the EU is going through a crisis right now. If you look at what's just happened just in the last few days in, in Brussels, we've had a corruption uh, scandal, which has really sent shockwaves right across the, the continent. But the, the people that's worrying the most are the, the, the diehard uh, federalists in Brussels who are worried about the long-term um, uh, stability of the project itself. You know, when I was in Brussels, um, I arrived in, in 1995. From almost the, mo the moment I arrived, all I heard from people working in the European Commission at, on the dinner party circuit was this worry, this... They would present this um, simile, this metaphor of uh, the EU being an old man, an old Dutchman riding a, a bicycle. And the worry is that the old man falls off the bicycle and then can't get back on. And this is really, if that was the worry in 1995, imagine what the panic going through Brussels is right now. So, you know, MEPs uh, traditionally or EU officials were always giving jobs to their friends. 
um, and giving contracts to whoever was politically aligned to them. We've broken the, the mold now with, uh, you know, Middle Eastern characters uh, sending suitcases of 600,000 euros around to, to MEP's apartments in Brussels. I mean, this really does show you um, the best and worst of the European Union. If you've got that kind of corruption on that kind of level where people just send you money like, like somebody might send you pizza, you know, then, you know, how long has the European Union got? I would argue that um, we're looking at the end game is actually the EU itself. And people are starting to panic because they are really, for me, the next most important date for Ukraine is 2024 for so many reasons, which we probably haven't got time to go into. But the main one is that for me, the EU will have its next real crisis with the lowest voter turnouts at the polls in its own European elections and the highest turnout for far right groups. And if we get to the situation where the European Parliament has a majority for the first time ever of far right groups, then you've got a complete antithesis of what the European Union stands for. But it, it's, it's interesting that the, 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 the Washington's aim was to corral and unite Europe uh, in favor of Ukraine. But Xavier, the exact opposite is happening. It's the law of unintended consequences. This was supposed to be these people in Washington, you know, I mean, I low octane thinkers, you know, will unite Europe, you know, will crush their economy. They'll be dependent on us and we'll make them um, uh, um, uh, be our flack in in Ukraine. Well, it's all in tatters now. Xavier. Yeah. Yes, because, you know, uh, in, in my opinion, for the West and uh, especially for Washington, there was only one plan, a plan A and there is no plan B. The plan A, uh, we are going to put, uh, remember what said uh, Victoria Nolan, uh, such a uh, never seen uh, never seen sanctions against Russia. So um, uh, uh, the Russian economy will collapse and the people are going to the street. Navalny will be president, and he will be uh, uh, shared the, the Russian territory in different parts, uh, as exactly wanted to do the uh, neoconservative uh, lobby uh, in the United States. But it, it didn't happen. And there is another point that we are, again, on the brink of an economic collapse, but we are, in, in Europe, I mean, on the brink of a military collapse. Because if you look at the the Western medias, that what they say that we have um, our ridiculous ammunition reserves prohibit us from waging a serious war against Russia. So we can't do anything. We can't uh, do an economical war against Russia. We have no more ammunition to fight against Russia. And I, I exactly what said uh, Scott Twitter uh, that uh, uh, actually Russia doesn't need any more uh, guarantee of security because Russia is demilitarizing NATO. Actually, that what what they did uh, in Ukraine. Till uh, the June, uh, the June of of this uh, this year, they are going to do it now uh, in uh, against the second army, the NATO Kievan army, and uh, they demilitarize them. And uh, actually, well, uh, Xavier, you're you're absolutely right, and that's why again we get always get this projection. You know, uh, um, um, uh, Putin is talking about loose nukes and all that. It's the West, Martin, that has been talking about the the possible deployment of uh, of a nuclear weapon in this. Country. Conflict, exactly for the reasons that Xavier just said, is that not only is Ukraine being demilitarized, NATO, whatever, however it was an alliance in the first place, is being depleted as well. They've admitted as much, Martin. Yeah, and it also, I think that that whole argument that Xavier makes um, very well, I might add, is um, is a very good example of just how much BS we're being fed by media in the West about Russia being our enemy. If Russia was really our enemy, do you think? You know, you would have this depletion of, of, of military stock so quick and so rapidly 
as it as it was. Now it's 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 fate. Russia is not our enemy, but it's a, excuse me, it's a convenient enemy for so many political agendas and largely to forward the the the, the ambitions of the European Union and NATO. And NATO is, you know, you, you talk about um, the the nukes and NATO. For me, you know, this, this talk about nukes is just that. It's only ever going to be talk. And I think everybody's waking up to this reality that NATO seems apparently to have gained some credibility. You know, it lost its identity before right. the Ukraine war. And people like Macron were, were making these ridiculous comments about it being brain dead. Um, you know, but it seems to have gained a certain amount of kudos amongst many Westerners. But it's, you know, geomilitary... Yeah, I, I would, if I could interrupt you, I would say among the elite. This is an elite agenda here, okay? All right, gentlemen, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to go to a hard break. And after that hard break, we'll continue our discussion on some real news. Stay with our team. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. This is the home edition to remind you we're discussing some real news. So let's it's, uh, continue the conversation here. Um, I would argue the dilemma that really faces the West is how they have framed this conflict win lose okay and that is fundamentally wrong if you want the conflict to come to an end if they were to take the approach which i think would be an appropriate approach because it would talk about uh pan-european security including russia but no they've taken the wrong path win lose they should be the the, the way out of this for everybody is to talk about peace and if you talk about peace then you find everyone's place in it and they refuse to do that, particularly that low-octane thinker, Stoltenberg. He cannot get there, okay? You listen to him, and he he, he sounds schizophrenic. Yeah, um, NATO is in Ukraine, but not in the conflict, and all of this other nonsense. No reporter with his worth his or her salt has ever asked him a hard question. But the question is, why aren't you talking about peace? Xavier. Yeah. And the, the problem is that NATO went too far in this war. Um, they, they could have helped Ukraine, you know, maybe to uh, to make Ukraine fight a little bit longer than it was supposed to to do. But they go so so far, they spend all the so so much money that, of course, the defeat of Ukraine, which is my in my opinion inevitable, the defeat of Ukraine will be the defeat of NATO. And actually, I I can't answer to your question. Because I don't know when NATO, because it's not a question of Kiev anymore, it's a question of Washington, it's a question of, of NATO, when NATO will be uh, uh, tired enough, exhausted enough to stop the war against Russia. Because uh, what we look at in Russia now is that the Russian government is ready to have a long war. They're ready to do it. It's, yeah. it's clear. Vladimir Putin uh, said it himself. So, and, but they said, as soon as you want to, try to, to start uh, negotiating, we are ready. But of course, because you make us invest more in this war, we will take more part of Ukraine. Because if you remember, the first uh, war aim of Russia was about 30,000 uh, square kilometers uh, of the part of Donbass they didn't control. Now they took 100,000 uh, 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 square kilometers. And uh, Peskov is already uh, talking, the uh, Kremlin speaker, is already, we asked, uh, somebody asked, uh, but what about Odessa and, uh, and Chernigov? And he said, it's depend on the local population. So for the Russian, 
as long as you put them to con to to continue to invest more in this conflict, they will take more part of Ukraine. So if the if the West want to to save something from Ukraine, it has to do it now. Maybe they could they could avoid the that that the Russia at least will take Odessa, because in my opinion, for the Russian uh, government, taking Odessa is one of the priority, and it would maybe maybe take one year more, but they will take Odessa. I would even, but I would even. I would even say Kharkov as well. Oh yes, of yeah, but but Kharkov, it's uh, for, if, in, in my opinion, there is no doubt for anybody. But Odessa, you know, it, in my opinion, it's a port that the US want to save from Russia. I mean, to 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 keep this uh, asset, which is very important because it's a it's um it's on the on the Black Sea. I, they lost Mariupol, they lost Berdyansk, and if, if they lose, they will lose, uh, of course, Nikolaev, and soon they, and if they lose Odessa. For for NATO for uh, for Ukraine it's the end of all. So, uh, but if they want to save Odessa from Russia, it's time to negotiate. It's time to demilitarize. Well, it's time to de denazify them. You bring up the word negotiations, Martin. I'm sure you came across the uh, multiple interviews that Frau uh, Merkel uh, uh, gave to German media, and it confirms everything that uh, uh, the three of us have believed all along is that the Germans, the French, they were never committed to a peace process, what was called Minsk, okay? So given what we've all said here already today, why would the Russians negotiate with any of these people? They've been proven to be duplicitous and liars, okay? Well, it makes and it, it makes, and, and yeah. it's something that Xavier, Xavier and I have talked about personally I had when we met in St. Petersburg, is that Russia is going to determine its own security guarantees because no, there's no one to negotiate with because Russia isn't going to want to do this in five years or 10 years time all over again. The, the outcome of this conflict, which Russia will determine, will be definitive, Martin. And Russia is playing the long game. Xavier is absolutely right. You know, we're talking about years. But, you know, looking at the Merkel interview and the, and the recent um admission by her that uh, there was nothing uh, genuine on the European Union side, you know, I think it was pretty shocking. A lot of people, you know, I mean, many people in Europe would be shocked by that because there is this default setting of so many Europeans that, you know, the West, we're basically, you know, good guys and, and everything. The garden. We're the garden. Yeah. Well, the garden or the jungle or whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, but, you know, we, that we showed our colours. That makes, as you quite rightly said, that makes negotiation like 10 times harder. And the stakes raised 10 times higher. So whatever Russia would want ultimately, you know, it makes it so much further away. And I think the European Union knows that. I think the EU leaders know that. They know that that um, that negotiating with Putin will be really hard because of our fault, not because of his um, particular um, idea about a peace a peace settlement. But the European the Europeans don't want peace. They don't want to give peace a chance, um, to coin that phrase. I think they believe that they can stick it out in the longer term. But look at the depletion of stocks. Look at the money that's being given to the to the Ukraine, which is which is being reduced all the time. I don't think Biden's going to get his military aid um, approved. And even if he did, how long have we got? How long can we can we bail out the Ukraine um, when, if we look at the possibility of a change of government in America in a couple of years' time and the Republicans getting in, there's every indication they're not going to spend the same amount of money. So when Russia looks at that dynamic over 24 months, which is a very short period of time, you know everything seems to be stacked up against the west but you know america keeps winning i've said this before on your show america keeps coming out as the winner you know it's just got all these um L uh, natural gas deals which are pi piling up it's got it, member states individually exactly on the european union side exactly where 
the, the, the Americans want them divided, more divided than ever. You well, know, I mean, and, and on, top, on top of that, the EU is falling apart. It's, it's a dream for Biden. He's laughing all the way to the bank, isn't he? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, it, 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 it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because of course, the U.S. is winning. I mean, it, it's really it's a double-edged sword because it's, it's double to sword. the point of being crazy. Because you have a Biden administration that, at least, uh, uh, wants to appear to be anti-fossil fuel, but at, at the same time, it is its big. It is the biggest booster of it because it's making so much money in Europe. But, yeah, but as a result, Europe's productivity goes down. I know, but how, how long? How long have we got? You know, Xavier talked about an economic meltdown, which is happening right now. What we need is a Marshall Plan. That's what we need the Americans to do: is to start feeding the Europeans, because that's where we're heading. You know, I would like to add uh, um, that the, the European Union allowed Eastern European countries like Poland to live at the expense of the German, French, Italian taxpayers. And it's almost over. I even don't know if uh, Warsaw uh, understand that uh, they are now destroying the German economy. And they live, thanks to the German economy, uh, on a higher level that they deserve to live, actually. Because uh, I, I guess um, the European uh, uh, funds for, for Poland, it's about 3% of uh, GDP, the Polish GDP. So it means the only uh, uh, the part of the uh, growing economy in, uh, in Poland is because we send them some money from the French taxpayers, from the German taxpayers. But we can do that. For the German part, because they used to have a strong industry, and we do that because um, uh, such an over-indebted country like France could survive by borrowing at low rates thanks to the strong euro. But because well, we confiscate exactly. the Russian assets, we have no more strong euro, and well, we can't uh, take credit uh, 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 at a low rate as we used to do. Well, you bring up a good point because, Martin, you know, um, the mainstream media likes to look at maps, it likes graphics, you know, it likes flying plane. You remember the Gulf War and all that, okay? But Xavier brings up the most germane point. I mean, you you can you can't print money to win this conflict. You can't, okay? Because what you're doing is going, and Europe's debt obligations are extraordinary and the US is catching up. You can't win a conflict just by printing money here. And this is, you know, this is one of the things that I've been focusing on, less on the military part. I'm not a military expert, but I mean, Ukraine will turn into a failed state before there is a um, an outcome, uh, um, you know, a definitive military outcome on the battlefield. And Europe is following a pace right behind Ukraine. It, it's amazing how Europe is. Be, it's the Ukrainianization of Europe, Martin. Yeah, but you don't, you don't like to touch on the military aspect. But I, I, you know, I can't help looking at the military aspect because all I see is corruption. You know when. You know, Western governments dream of the opportunity to illegally subsidize their militaries. They can't do it in peacetime because there are WTO rules against that. But in, in war, you know, we tend to overlook that. And what's going on is Biden is making two or three uh, American arms manufacturers, you know, the directors, multi-billionaires. You know, they're buying real estate in the Bahamas faster than you can say, um, uh, get the curry on. But, you know, what we're looking at now is corruption. It's corruption that is just expanding beyond any anybody's um, uh, understanding of it. And when we look at military spending, we see, see corruption on a grand scale. I'm wondering whether, how this ends. You know, for me, in Ukraine is very much a class war. I see it as the elite, uh, which represents less than 1% in Ukraine, and their ambitions, their ideas about how to enrich themselves, 
they're not really that concerned about who keeps control of Ukraine. They're concerned about their own personal wealth and, and, their, and the lifestyles that they can actually um, sustain. And um, so it's a 1% versus 9, 9%. Um, scenario and most people in the West don't understand that or don't want to touch on that because it's the same elitist idea in Brussels as well. You know, people are thinking about the long-term uh, longevity of the of these amazing jobs they hold in the European Parliament or the European Commission. But hold on to your hat. We've got five more years of Macron, the most nuttiest, wackiest EU federalist we've ever had. And my predictions are: I'm going to go on the record. He is the best candidate, the most likeliest candidate. For European Commission or European Council President in 2029. It's a long way away, but that's this is where we're heading. Xavier, I'm going to be last 30 seconds. Go ahead. Um, not just, you know, in my opinion, Russia will win this war. The only question is to know, I mean, this war against NATO, and the only question will it will it uh, won on the first on the economical point of view, on the military point of view. This is my this is my only question, and I can't answer no. But of course, Russia. Uh, will win because the the time is working for for Russia. Yeah, I mean, there's I, I it was a few months ago. I think Martin, I I, I asked you about who's got the clocks and who's got the time, and you told me <laughs> both. Okay, and I I had asked a few other guests the same week that, and they all said the same thing. I'm sure you weren't colluding with them, but I think that you know this this whole Western uh, false narrative, like RussiaGate, weapons of mass destruction, the Hunter Biden laptop. Why people believe this one Ukraine story when all of the others were lies is a mystery to me. All right, gentlemen, that's all the time we have. I want to thank my guests in Marrakesh and here in Moscow. I want to thank our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time. Remember, cross talk rules.